0: Ripple effects. Community wisdom. Impact storytelling. Philanthropy. Impact community President. leaders initiative. Inspiration to impact.
1: For so many children across the global south, but definitely in Africa, they don't they literally don't go to school. They don't go to their free public school because they can't afford a uniform.
2: I'm Jillian Metro.
0: And I'm Luke Tuttle, and this is Inspiration to Impact, the Sorenson Impact Center podcast.
2: Join us as we speak with thought leaders, innovators, and game changers in education, social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and everything in between.
0: About the impact they're creating in the world around them and how they got there.
2: In this episode, we're sharing a conversation we had with ChID Liberty, co-founder and CEO of Liberty and Justice.
0: Jolyn, would you mind telling us a little bit about ChID?
2: Sure. So Chid was born in Liberia in West Africa and spent most of his time in the United States and, and in Germany growing up. But in 2009, Chid returned to Africa after 28 years abroad to co-found Liberty and Justice, which became Africa's first fair trade certified apparel manufacturer. And it was established to transform the apparel supply chain, which is you know known for worker exploitation and environmental degradation, to you know, really transform it to to a place of partnership and and sustainability.
0: Thank you for including the, the purpose of why it was founded, because after all, this is a social impact podcast, and his story is really inspiring. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it.
2: And if they don't? Well, then we will. And if they don't, then hopefully they'll
0: leave us some feedback (laughs) on the website and we will incorporate that into future episodes. (laughs) Not do anything untoward or violent.
2: Should we get into the episode? Yep, that's what I was going to say, Luke. All right, let's get to it. Chid, thank you so much for joining Luke and I today. We know that you are busy, so we are grateful that you found some time in your schedule to talk with us.
1: Today is particularly crazy, but I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad this hour is with you.
0: So, Chid, it would be really great if you could just tell us a little bit about the impact that you're having now and kind of just give us some context for what we'll be talking
1: about today. Sure. So, you know, we we were really, really excited seeing all this amazing impact happening at all levels of our factory in Liberia. And then we started working with a group of nine other factories and helping them sort of adopt some of these standards that would create this impact. And that was originally called Made in Africa and now Made in Africa has turned into something else. And where I think it's gonna lead us to is about supporting 87,000 smallhold farmers with at least one one woman household member, female household member in all of those smallhold farms' families. 30,000 women traders, informal market women, are going to basically get their primary source of revenue through, through the project. And then there's massive carbon, about 33,000 metric tons, and about 81,000 metric tons of, of carbon and water saved, respectively through some of the migrations we're going to do in the in the in the cotton supply chain. So right now we're sort of working at multiple levels, environmental, social and governance, and I think it it'll, it'll be really positive.
2: Well, Luke and I have been and are very inspired by your story and we're so excited to help you tell it and to share it with as many people as we can and hopefully provide them with some inspiration. So if you could just give us some, you know, brief bio information about yourself to help kind of set the stage. That would be great.
1: Sure. So I'm Liberian. I was born in Monrovia about 41 years ago <laughs> and, you know, had to leave Monrovia at the age of 18 months old. You know, there was a recent coup in in Liberia and my dad sort of felt like it was an unsafe uh, place for a people of our ethnic group to be. But People of our ethnic group tended to be, you know, pretty well educated, and they had a lot of political power in in the past regime. And so uh, the the new regime needed all these PhDs to take uh, really really big jobs, and so they shipped my dad to Germany, which was Liberia's largest trading partner at the time, specifically because of iron ore. And so my dad became Liberia's ambassador to Germany, and I spent, you know, basically the first you know, five years of my life in in West Germany in Bonn and was kind of a, you know, Liberian German kid, (laughs) as as bizarre as that sounds. At the age of five, the government and my dad fell out. Uh, There was a sham election in Liberia. The president caught wind that my dad was opposing his presidency, so he recalled my dad and we kind of got news that if we went back to liberia my dad was potentially going to jail or he was potentially going to get killed so we decided that we'd go to palo alto california instead very sound of music style like we had multiple tickets just in case like the government was tracking us we had multiple tickets in multiple places one plane to nigeria one plane to dc one plane to like illinois and we just like boarded one of the planes and hoped not to get caught so we are uh um, Group of refugees that moved to America and it, it worked out for us. Let's put it that way. And, and we wish it could work out for many others because we think this is a pretty great country when it lives up to its ideals, of course. You
0: experienced more international political intrigue in the first five years of your life than <laughs> I think Joe Lynn and I ever will. <laughs> ever.
2: Like, like, there's no question about it. Yeah. <laughs> An amazing story.
0: Just to get us to the point in your life where you reconnect with Liberia. Um, You landed Palo Alto as a kid, actually end up growing up in Milwaukee and coming back to work in tech in Silicon Valley. Um, But, you know, what was it that pushed you to start this business in Liberia? Your family has deep ties there, but what was it that really pushed you to go and, and start this company there?
1: I think there were really two things. One of them, like you said, I was born there and losing my dad and really, yeah, you know, I lost my dad when I was 18. So it was right at the time that like, just graduated high school, just started college, all my friends are, are, are sort of away at their respective schools, and in a new sort of place and a new stage of life. And then sort of like, surprisingly, lost my dad. And, and I think that a couple of things came up for me. Number one, I had spent like most of my life trying to like erase my Liberian-ness because it was very different. We didn't know any other Liberian people really, or there weren't other Liberian people in my school. So it wasn't like I was going up to everybody and saying, oh, I'm Liberian, you know, for for <laughs> for most of my life, or I was trying to prove that I'm like Altoian or I'm, you know, North Shore Milwaukeean. I wasn't really like talking about, about Liberia, I was like trying to erase and maybe even to some degree like suppress that Liberian so that I could be with other people and feel like I was part of the group. And then all of a sudden you you lose you know, one of your primary connections to that place and that identity and you're like, whoa, hold on one second. And then you have all these people who are telling you stories and sending you letters about what happened with your dad in Liberia. And like, this is what, this is how he changed my life. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a second, like, why am I trying to erase this thing? You know, actually last week, my wife and I drove to the town of Southampton, Virginia, which my great, 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 the five greats, grandfather, lived in as a free black. He was freed as a as a young man and he took the name Liberty. There's another young man that was freed at the same time who took the name Freedom. So he was George Liberty and that guy was James Freedom. And they lived as free blacks in Southampton, Virginia. They actually were voting members of an integrated church and so on and so forth. And, and he would adopt his, his female relatives or buy them out of slavery essentially. So George was like basically this head of this 13-person household of both like technically enslaved because they were enslaved to him because he would literally buy them so that they wouldn't have to be owned by others um, and and free Blacks. And then there's the Nat Turner Slave Revolt in 1831, I believe, or 1832. And after that slave revolt, free Blacks basically came under attack in our country. And especially in that area, it actually happened in Southampton, Virginia. So now it became illegal for Black people to meet with each other without white supervision. And so he decided at the age of 70, actually the oldest person on on record, that he was going to take all three generations of his family and move them to Liberia because he felt that they could be more free there. And he actually got to Liberia and he died the next year. So like his last act of his life was removing his family from Virginia and taking them to Liberia where he felt they could be safe. So when I think about Liberia, you know, his grandson becomes Speaker of the House, his son becomes a senator from LOFA, and then his son becomes ambassador, and then his son becomes me. And so I realized that I didn't really want to pretend like that wasn't a pretty great thing to have gone through as a family and and wanted to make sure that, you know, the end of our family's responsibility to this place and this idea doesn't stop with my generation.
2: I cannot imagine the courage it must have taken for your grandfather to decide to take his family back to Liberia. But the legacy that that action resulted in is incredible. Okay, so your father's passing turned your attention to Liberia. And, you know, as such we know that you became aware of and were influenced by the Liberian Women's Peace Movement. And what was it about this movement that you found so inspiring, so much so that it led you to wanting to create a business that focused on employing women?
1: Well, it's funny. It's like I was both inspired by the Liberian Peace Movement and then I also just indebted to them. Without their movement, I don't think that we would have come to peace in Liberia when we did. And, you know, my father was a Liberian historian, and then obviously was really involved in in Liberian politics. So like literally from my living room every day, he was on the phone talking to all the players about like, who's attacking who and why are they attacking this person and blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm not trying to make my dad sound like a warlord. He was actually a really peaceful dude. Um, But he just knew the players. And so I'm listening to this all the time. And I'm just Constantly hearing all these males, these people who tend to have the same gender as I, we're looking at this problem and seeing it as the only way that we can solve this problem is to send in another group to aggressively take it from them. And this has been going on now for my entire childhood. Sometimes the group, of as small as four people, go in and they take out one regime, and then the next guy is coming in to attack. And so you know, after seeing this for like most of my life. It's one of the reasons that I wasn't really that interested in Liberia. It just seemed like, you know, South Central on, on steroids where it was just like gang warfare gone mad. And there was just no chance of peace because it was just so complex. There was no, no reasoning with people. There was all of these emotions wrapped up inside. So much revenge needed to be had that you would just never get to peace. And what I think was so brilliant about um, Lema Bowie and Auntie Sugar's movement was that they just started with peace. And like literally the symbol of of their uh, role in the war was sitting sometimes in a war zone in white t-shirts and white headscarves and praying for peace and just having these outward displays of peace and doing that in all of these places until they eventually even do it in our crowd during peace talks and literally surround the building filled with warlords and refuse to leave and hold hands and pray until these warlords decide that they're going to get serious about a peace agreement, that to me was pretty powerful. And even more powerful than that was that in all the stories that I'd heard about the end of the war, they were never included. And so the role of women generally gets erased. Here, it was the role of women creating peace among a bunch of warlords, and it was being erased. And so I just really felt like, listen, if there is one group of people in the world that I want to go work with right now, it's those Liberian women. And how can we turn their movement into an economic movement so that not just we have peace and no prosperity. How do we have both?
2: That image. I think I, I legitimately have the chills right now, but even you just you talking about the image of these women surrounding that building is so powerful, it it really seems like the physical representation of peace. I mean, I mean, literally.
1: yeah. and it it, it was immensely powerful. And I, I always think back to the story. There'd been like fifty, peace agreements, but none of them had been adhered to. And so at one point, Lema comes from outside and she brings in a group of women and she's like, no, we're keeping you guys stuck in there until there's a real peace agreement. And they're like, you need to move. You know, they're cursing at her. And it wasn't until she threatened them. She said, if you guys make me move, I'm going to take my clothes off, which in our tradition is a curse. See your mother naked, you know, she's represented of the mother and so she threatened to strip naked there and that's when they were like no no, no. everybody's like no 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 no, please don't. <laughs> now that's powerful that was all captured on video do you know where the video of that was it was a vhs holding up a window in like the ministry of information like nobody kept the documentation but to them that was just worthless and that to me just shows you so much about erasure and erasing the role of women so to me, that's why I, I went back and worked with women in Liberia is I, I knew that there was so much hidden and untapped power there and we could do something really special.
2: Okay. So you arrive in Liberia, you're inspired by the women's peace movement, and you know that you you want to work with women and you've now established, we know that you've established this very successful, you know, business there, <laughs> but but what <laughs> yeah. was it like?
1: In in whose eyes, I guess.
2: (laughs) Well, mine and my opinion is the only one that matters. I say it was successful. It's not Google. It's not Google.
1: It's not Amazon. (laughs) But yeah, we've established a company.
2: Okay. So you arrived there and you have this vision of what you want to do. Can you talk to us about some of the struggles, the the hardships that you faced in in the work and establishing what you've established there?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are really so many. I feel like we could just have a a conversation about about that piece because, you know, everything that you can imagine, some self-inflicted and then some just trying to do something really new in a place where um, it's not, not set up to do that. I mean, Liberia didn't have power. At that time, we didn't have like a centralized power grid.
2: What year was this This when you went back? I got
1: back in 2009. So this, we really started working in 2010. So you can imagine, I mean, our, our, the people who did have power were getting it from one heavy fuel oil generator in central Monrovia, which doesn't cover the entire city, barely covers maybe, you know, a quarter or something. So no power, really no running water, really no transportation none of this infrastructure really existed and so we had to do a lot of things from scratch and to be really creative and i would say one theme about that time is that you know i was coming in as a you know silicon valley executive i was still in my 20s so i thought i was you know being executive from silicon valley i was smarter than everybody of course And so whenever one of these problems came up, I would like, you know, do my little desk research and come up with a solution and then sort of start prescribing these solutions from like my limited local knowledge and the theme across all of them was the more I I stepped out of that frame and realized that like, yes, I was the bringer of capital and maybe some vision, but really the more that we gave that power over to local people who knew how to get power when they needed to power, who knew how to organize transportation. The more local we were, the better and more productive we were. And like all these great ideas that us fancy people come up with in New York and Silicon Valley are fantastic. But, you know, really, we, we forget sometimes that places like Liberia are missing capital, but they're not missing common sense.
0: That is a really great point. Um, And, you know, we also know that you were starting this business right before the Ebola epidemic in Liberia. Um, So can you tell us any, you know, parallels or any connections that you see between then and the pandemic that we're living through now?
1: Yeah, uh, great question. I can tell you that I'm shocked to say that the two are eerily similar, things that I thought were unique to Liberia and unique to being a you know incredibly poor country that I thought could only happen there because like, you know, oh, okay, well, if you don't even get a newspaper to your house, how could you believe that Ebola is real? And if you don't even you know have access to an education, you might think it's still okay to go touch your family members or whatever. But now seeing it happen here in basically the exact same way and seeing basically how the same thing, they wanted to shut down and quarantine these people. They were like, oh, heck no, you're not quarantining us. I mean, almost the exact same (laughs) scenario. And the difference is you have, I want to say, you know, almost a couple hundred thousand people living on a little quarter square mile stretch of land, basically on top of each other. So literally if one person gets it, it, it's done. And then on top of that, you have, we have people from there and from three other slums coming into the factory every day. And again, if one person gets it, it's just like the easiest place for them to spread to everybody else. And so we had to make the very, very early decision, even before the government acted, we're shutting down. We don't want to risk that with our workers. And really, it was an, an original plan for me to shut down for a total of two weeks. We thought, okay, um, let's give the government two weeks to get this under control, and then we'll come back. Because as you can imagine, we had signed you know, $40 million of, of contracts with people to export, and we had just started the process of exporting under those contracts when this all was going down. So we're in the middle of manufacturing, like literally our very first orders that are gonna be shipped from Liberia after this long process building this factory, getting it up. We had shipped smaller orders before that for smaller companies, but like the two companies, the two orders that were really making this into a real business were now coming to fruition. And you can imagine you're a couple months before that shipment and somebody's like, there's Ebola in Liberia and you're kind of like, ah, whatever, you know, human nature whatever, we'll figure out a way around it. We don't need this to disrupt our business and our life. And and then it just keeps getting closer and closer and closer into your own circle of influence until uh, a mechanic from Sri Lanka and another person who was helping to work for us felt like they got a terrible headache one day. And we started to think, wow, will is this Ebola? Are they are going to get sick? And that's when we realized really the danger of having people in the factory together. And we completely um, we completely shut it down.
2: Yeah. Just hearing you talk about that, I can imagine right now, there may be a little bit of PTSD that you're feeling. Like, I, already, <laughs> no, I already went through actually, this. You
1: know, it's actually not PTSD, funny enough. It's more of like really recognizing, all right, I've been through this and it actually gave me a lot of confidence. I'm going through all these things because number one, I realized that like Liberia was really bad during Ebola and Liberia was, you know, everything shut down and like everybody was constantly scared about touching anything and, you know, it it was a, it was a scary, like, Ebola was pretty, was pretty intense. Like you you saw some of the photos, like, you know, people are like bleeding out of their eyes. And I mean, it's a really intense disease. And so, so that was a really just scary, a scary situation for everybody that everybody, once they saw it, once they heard about a family member or a friend of a family or whatever, that's when um, it got really real for them. Or once they heard it from somebody that they really trusted, like in our case, our factory became very real.
0: So once it really started to sink in for people, what changes did you notice?
1: Yeah, so I remember talking to Jenna, who is like our top sower by, by far. But when she came to the factory, she was originally illiterate. She was internally displaced. So she was left in a refugee camp in her own country. Actually, her children, some of her children were taken away because they were part Sierra Leonean. And the dad just took them, and so she was kind of left in this internally displaced camp with nowhere to go. And one day she asked if she could call me, and she uh, we were talking, and she's like, "Yeah, boss, you know, I, I I know I have ulcers, but as soon as I started to feel my ulcers, I wasn't sure if it was ulcers or not. So I quarantined myself from my family. Nobody's allowed to come near me. So they they really 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 got the message, and because of that, we didn't lose. Um, anybody nobody even got sick within our, our our factory and so that was the one lesson the other lesson was that like three years later you know we were in liberia for christmas and like everything was normal i don't i you know when we were there for christmas this year nobody thought about ebola or said anything about ebola or checked anything like it was perfectly back to normal and so and and we went through some crazy times and now like it's not even really in our memory anymore and so as, as crazy as people are saying that the world is ending and things will never be the same. And, you know, like, yes, we're going through a really intense time right now and it's going to be bad and it could get worse, but likely in, in three years, things will be pretty normal.
2: That is really good. I, I needed to hear that. So thank you. Thank you for giving me just a little bit of hope today. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that, that is comforting. And these days I will take what I can get. So could you talk to us about how you came out of that and what became of this company that you started
1: so the the first step out of that to me was i think feeling like a lot of entrepreneurs currently feel which is like i have no idea what's going on i have no idea when my market is going to need me to serve it again i have no idea when the government and travel and borders are going to be open again and when I'm going to be able to get my supplies back or whatever. But the first thing I think in a in a pandemic or an, an epidemic that everybody needs to figure out is like, okay, how can I be helpful and serve others right now? And so for us it was like, at first it was like, listen, we've got a building, at first it was like we got a sewing factory. So we're like, oh well, is it that we can make hazmat suits or we can make, you know, other PPE or like, you know, Unlike COVID, like Liberia, you, Ebola, you need to be in a full hazmat suit because yeah, it's that dangerous. And so, so we, you know, we explored all that, and it just wasn't going to work. You can't turn sort of a pants and t-shirt factory into a hazmat factory very easily. And so, second thing became like, oh well, we have a building, and it's pretty strategically placed. And so, can we at least use that as a place to bring in all of these supplies? Um, that people need for their own homes and start to assemble these kits and buckets. And that really became the use of the factory. So I think the first step is like, what do you do to like, make sure that you're contributing to the fight against this, this epidemic or pandemic? The second thing is you're starting to really figure out like what things are going to be after. And I didn't really know. And what I did understand though, was that kind of like here, (laughs) again, the parallel is very similar that that kids were gonna be out of school. The ability for Liberian kids to do school from home is a lot worse than it is in the United States. Like they basically had already just lost a year of school. And so one of the main reasons that kids couldn't go back to school is that during Ebola, now your parent had lost their job too, most likely. And even if you go to a free public school, there are few entry fees that you need to pay. most significantly is always the uniform. And so, for so many children across the global south, but definitely in Africa, they don't they literally don't go to school. They don't go to their free public school because they can't afford a uniform. And there are these amazing studies done in in Kenya that showed if you donated a school uniform to a kid, their attendance went up by, I think, like 68% sometimes. For every three young girls that got a donated school uniform, two would delay their first pregnancy. And these are randomized controlled trials done by MIT. So you could really see the power of giving kids uniforms. So I was like, listen, we got a sewing factory. All of our orders have been canceled. It's a really, really big disaster, quite frankly. But what we have is a lot of fabric, a lot of women that need to go to work in this building. And so like can we use that to help and so i had this great idea where we would you know make uh, school uniforms and give them away to any kid that needed them to go back to school and there was only one problem of course which is like who is going to pay for the uniform and we decided to sort of make it into a brand and a a movement where people could buy uh, t-shirts and other Great stuff. And, and then that would subsidize us giving away a school uniform, kind of a, a true social enterprise model, a little bit like Tons, but a little bit different because we also manufacture everything on the continent. So. so, we did that. It was really, really successful. We launched first on Kickstarter and then went into Bloomingdale's with our men's line, our women's line, sold out quite quickly online. And just as we were doing that, another really big opportunity came about. Uniform was never really intended to be a lifetime business. We were just trying to sort of save our company coming out of out of Ebola. And another opportunity came about um, that greatly increased, I would say, our business and the value of our business and is just now coming out of stealth mode. So I can't say a ton about it, but all I can say is that it's great and going to be fun.
2: The impact of this work really does amaze me. You're providing a way for children to go to school and helping the women who work in your factory by providing them employment. It's its impressive.
1: Yeah. I think they say fewer than maybe between 30 and 40% of children are in school. And 97 or 98, I think when we did our last survey of the women's children in our factory and school. So tells you like just how powerful Um, and how determinative it can be if your mom has a job that you're going to go to school. So a lot of people build schools because they care about education. That's awesome. If you also want to care about education, a great way to do it is to make sure moms have jobs.
0: And you know, this is such a great example of how interconnected all these issues are. Employment, healthcare, education, your story, your work really highlights that. And it's something that comes up again and again as we talk to you and others innovating to bring about change so thank you for sharing
1: your story with us no 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 of course
2: chid thank you again so much for for speaking with us today we really really enjoyed this time with you
1: thank you guys it was a pleasure to speak with you today and can't wait to do it again
0: we're looking forward to it thanks again
1: thanks guys take care Bye now.
2: luke what a doozy of a story baby
0: really i mean (laughs) it's got warlords political intrigue reconnecting with family heritage and history beating the odds to create a successful business during an ebola outbreak like honestly what is missing it's got everything
2: luke it's 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 missing love (laughs) a love story
0: (laughs) okay but actually you're you're not joking
2: entirely uh in fact next episode we will be speaking with an amazing woman who is an entrepreneur a model a philanthropist her name is Georgie Badiel and she's similarly working to empower women of Africa and just so happens to be married to Chid. and and we hope you'll tune into that one as well
0: inspiration to impact is the Sorenson impact center podcast the center is housed in the David Eccles school of business at the University of Utah Production assistance for this episode from Austin Haywood, Lexi Cayley, Brent McDonald, and Ali Salvador. Audio and visual branding created by Adam Wall, Rylan Shaw, and Steph Shortovani. Don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a review so that others can find the podcast too. See you next time. Bye.